Uh, any classic rock fans? Anybody listen right on? You're going to like this. You're going to like this. Let's start uh, with some music this morning. Carry on my wayward son. <laughs> There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. This is October 1976. Uh, this band from the Midwest called Kansas released their third album, or their fourth album. They'd released three albums in just the previous two years. And uh, this album was called Left Overture. And having majored in all these long, really artistic, artsy kinds of songs for the last previous years, this American progressive rock band also proved that they could have a successful radio hit with this song, Carry On Wayward Son. It drove the sales of this album to four million sales, which is three million more than all of their previous records combined. And suddenly Kansas was on the map considered one of the best American rock bands in the middle 1970s. The next year, October 1977, Kansas releases their fifth album. It's called Point of No Return with a K, K-N-O. Point of no return. And the seventh track on the B side, so there used to be these things called records, Madeline, and they had an A side and a B side. And the B side was where you would hide the songs that you're like, uh, just fill the record up, right? So the seventh track on the B side of this album is this simple, very different acoustic guitar uh, song. Go ahead and play that again. And this song, the story of this song, is so uh, interesting on so many levels. But here's why I'm bringing it up today. This song began as a basic finger-picking exercise for Carrie Livgren, the man who wrote the song. Like he would warm up by playing this, this song over and over again. This was how he would tune his guitar and how he would limber up his fingers and get ready to play. Listen to it. Just a drop of water the, the finger the So one morning he's in there, he's practicing his guitar, and his wife comes in, her name's Vicky, and she says, Carrie, you ought to write some lyrics to this song, and he does. In fact, he actually doesn't write them, he just pulls them from the biblical book Levit uh, uh, Lamentations. And, uh, and then a couple months later, he presents it to the band, and he's sure that they're going to say, this is not our style, haven't you been around, haven't you heard the big, huge, symphonic things we've been doing? And, but in fact, they loved it, and they're like, where has this been? And they end up recording the song in 77. And in 1978, it becomes their best-selling song ever, and it's still their most popular, most sold, most listened to, most profitable song they've ever done. So see, Carrie Livgren, he tapped into something we've been talking about, which is that the basics, you never outgrow the basics, and when the basics are continually practiced, they don't just stay there, but they, they, they develop, they mature, and they become something beautiful. And, and so this is what we've been talking about, this concept that you never outgrow the basics. We've been, this whole new year, we've, we've kicked off this series, this five-week series called You Never Outgrow the Basics. Like, and, and the examples we've used are like a pro baseball player who maybe makes $100,000 a game, um, like several of the major players on each team do, but still takes ground balls every day, right? Or like 70-year-old men who still tie their shoes the same way they did when they were seven years old. 
Livgren knew you, you don't, he's the guy who wrote that song, you never outgrow the basics of playing scales if you're a musician. You never outgrow the basics of, of these finger exercises. Your practice of the basics, it matures. And as it matures, it becomes elegant and more beautiful and more effective. So today I want to take this concept this, that we've been talking about, this you never outgrow the basics idea, and I want to connect it simply to the topic of relationships. Okay, that's what we'll talk about today, relationships. A couple weeks ago, we talked about loving God's word, which is just a basic practice of the Christian faith, reading the Bible, loving the word. Last week, we talked about your work. Uh, most of you probably spent more time working last week than you did anything else. You probably spent more time at work or working than anything else. So we talked about last week. I hope you listen to that. Watch it if you haven't seen it. Today, I want to talk about relationships. You might say that relationships are just the context in which life happens. Relationships are like where we experience the reality of life. Life doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's this crazy mix of relationships. Uh, some of them are casual, like the person you pass on the street, they're walking their dog, they're just in your neighborhood, maybe you've never met them. Some of them are more intimate, like uh, somebody like your spouse or your kids or somebody that you have a very close relationship with or somebody that you just do a lot of stuff with, like somebody who you work alongside. You're with them all the time, doing stuff together all the time. I, I want to make this as practical as possible this morning, so I want to invite you to begin by writing down two or three names of people with whom you are in relationship, all right? So would you take a minute and do that? Write down two or three names of people with whom you're in relationship. Could be a casual relationship, could be a really close relationship. It doesn't matter uh, for the sake of this, of this teaching, I don't think. But I think it would be helpful if it's a current relationship. So maybe don't write down like your friend from third grade that you haven't seen since uh, dust in the wind came out or something like that. But yeah, a current relationship. Write down two or three names. I want to make this as helpful, as practical as possible. Like maybe it's your teenager, or your neighbor, or your spouse, or your boss. The more specific, the better. Um, and then, in another effort to make this less kind of um, about just listening and more about participating this morning, would you try to write down uh, what you do? What is the nature of this relationship? What do you do with this person? So like if, it's your, if you wrote down the name of your son, you might say, I parent. Uh, this person. Or if you wrote down the name of your spouse, I partner with uh, this person. Or if it's your, somebody you work with, I, I work with this person, or I run with this person, or I carpool with this person, or I coach this person. All right. Go ahead and write down the, uh, what you do. <clears throat> We're updating our will. We wrote this will, had this will done way back in like 2000. We had one kid, now we have more kids, and uh, I had to, I, there's this clause. You're writing stuff down, right? This is just filler. So there's this clause in, the, in, the, in this process. It's called the uh, family catastrophe clause. If my whole family gets evaporated in one shot, right? Everything's gone. Uh, I'm, I, had to, I had to supply all these names of people. Okay, this, in this situation, this person. And then I had a first string, second string, third string. I had to provide like this deep lineup for like, okay, so there's this person, this is the relationship, this is where they live. Oh my gosh, it was exhausting. So I've been doing this, been doing this. You guys ready? You got your names and your, your relationships? Okay, good. I'm only asking for two or three. Okay, good. So let's talk about the basic Christian relational ethic. The basic 
Christian relational ethic, the most foundational Christian teaching about how to relate to others, whether they're friends or enemies. What is it? It's love, right? Yeah, it's Christ uh, who is love. Christ is the definition, which is what I'm going to get to in a second. We typically say this, how are Christians supposed to treat people? That's the question. And the answer, of course, is love. It's the basic Christian relational ethic. It is also the basic Christian relational practice. It's love. Jesus says, love one another. Jesus says, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love your enemy. This is what it is. It's love. Here's the practical problem with this. Here's the practical problem. We don't know what that means anymore. We're not sure exactly how to do that. It's become more complicated. We're not sure what that looks like in certain relational situations. We have a hard time engaging in true love uh, universally because it's just become more complicated in my view. So I want to show you, probably more, more like remind you of something that you already know because of, after all, this is a series about basics. Remind you of something you'll probably already know in your head. I want to remind you of the Christian definition of love. I want to look at how love is defined by Christ. And there are several places we could go to find some Christian instruction about love specifically. But I want to look at what I would argue is the most basic, the most core, the most foundational definition of Jesus. It's on the first page of John's gospel, John chapter 1. Um, and let's, let's just look at that together beginning with the first verse and then culminating with verse 14. I'll put most of it on the screen here. It's on page 739. So this is written by uh, one of the followers of Jesus. And unlike the rest of the gospel stories, he doesn't actually begin with the birth of Jesus. He begins the story way, way, way earlier than that. Okay, so here's John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, that's where he's going to start, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He, so now word gets personalized. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Think of God speaking things into existence, right? In him was life. In the word was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then there is this section where John the Apostle talks about a different John, John the Baptist, as someone who is the forerunner to Christ, the one who points out Christ to the rest of the world. And we're going to come down, we'll skip down to verse 14, get back to this language about the word. Here's the culminating statement. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is John chapter 1, verse 14. It is a super important verse. It is a super important verse for several reasons. Let me just touch on two. First, Theologically and historically, this is a massively important piece of scripture because it reveals the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. It reveals something core about the essence of who Jesus was and is. He is God become man. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Jesus, unlike anybody else, has two natures. 
Not just one nature, two. He has a divine nature and a human nature. He's fully God, fully man. Without giving up any of his divinity, he became also fully human. Uh, some, an image that's sometimes helpful is, uh, I've never seen this in real life, but in movies sometimes you see people put a piece of iron in a furnace. That iron, without ceasing to be iron, also takes on a whole different nature, which is the nature of fire there. So it's two things at one time, similar to what happens here with the word becoming flesh. So this statement, John 1.14 Super important because it says something really core about the identity of Jesus, that he is God and man. Secondly, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, it's also a hugely important verse because it tells me about how to live my life as a faithful follower of Jesus. In other words, this same verse teaches me how to love in a way that is Christian. And this is what I want to focus on. So look again at the names of the people that you wrote down just a few minutes ago, here is the basic ethic that should govern the manner in which you relate to the people whose names you wrote down, no matter who they are. Here is the basic ethic. This is super basic, and it is super challenging at the same time. Here it is. We are called to love like Christ, who was among us full of grace and truth. We're called to love like Christ, who was among us, with us, full of grace and truth. Let's take that in two parts. The first part is this among us idea. Jesus' impact on the world is known because he was born and, and, and lived among us, right? This is the story that we just celebrated at Christmas because he came to live and to die as one of us. What John literally writes down <clears throat> about Jesus is that he took on flesh and tabernacled with us or set up a tent with us, which evokes this amazing, um, significant, symbolic language from the Old Testament. It's super rich. It's super layered. Essentially, however, John is saying, Jesus became human and lived among us. This is the love of Christ. It is love that lives among. It is love that lives with. So if we're going to love as Jesus loves... A basic prerequisite for doing so is being with people, not above people, not distinguishing yourself, or di I shouldn't say distinguishing, but not distancing yourself from people, not believing that you're better than others. We need to be with people, with others. Being with others now doesn't mean that you're the same as others. Doesn't mean that. Being with someone doesn't mean you're the same as someone. Being with someone doesn't mean you agree with someone. Being with someone doesn't mean you endorse everything that they are or do. It means you love them. That's what it means. Being with someone means you love them. When I am truly with you, I'm not judging you, right? Judgment comes from thinking I'm above you, um, I'm better than you, I've distanced myself from you, but if I choose to be with you, if I choose to enter into your world to share your pain, to grieve because you're grieving, to rejoice because you're rejoicing, listen, I am positioning myself to love as Jesus loved. By being with you, by choosing to be with somebody, you are positioning yourself in a way that enables you positionally to love as Jesus loves. John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is the Christian relational 
ethic of love. And love, as defined by Christ, begins by choosing to place ourselves with others. With others. So that's the first part. Here's the second part. This is the second half of John 1.14. John continues and says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That phrase, you can just... That, this is amazing. The, the content here is amazing. Full of grace and truth. That, friends, is the distinctly Christian character of love. That is the distinctly Christian manner in which we can be with someone and be faithfully Christian. Full of grace and full of truth. Is this challenging? Oh yeah, it's remarkably challenging. But this is love as defined by Jesus. These are the basic, essential ingredients of real love. Grace and truth. <clears throat> grace and truth. Not half grace, half truth. This is similar to the identity of the core nature of Jesus. He's not half man, half God. No, all man, all God. Same with real love. Not half grace, half truth. Not some grace, some truth. Not grace on Mondays, truth on Tuesdays. No, all grace, all truth at the same time, all the time. A full measure of grace and a full measure of truth together. The word of God became flesh, so Jesus is fully God and fully man. Similarly, Jesus lived with us the true love of God in the flesh, what does that look like? Full of grace and full of truth. All grace, all truth at the same time. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. That is so challenging. So here's a real practical difficulty of living out a life in a way that is like loving as defined by Jesus. As a product of Western culture and Western education, I have been trained to see things as either or. I've been trained that way. I've been soaking in this sort of worldview for 45, 46 years. It's either or. So I encounter a relational situation. I look at the names that I wrote down in my notes earlier this week, and I think, okay, it's either this or it's this. I need to treat this person with grace or I need to treat this person with truth. This is a graceful moment, or I just got to bring the truth right now, right? And I think either, I actually shouldn't have done that, but that's not, and that's what it feels, right? It's, but, but, it, but it's, Jesus confronts me with a whole new way of thinking, both and. That's, the, that's what he confronts me with. It's not either or, it's both and all the time. It's always both. It's not sometimes grace, sometimes truth. It's not 40% grace, 60% truth. I am called to be full of grace, which is sort of, and full of truth, right, at the same time. This is incredible. Now, I'm not likely to perfect this, right? This is super challenging. Holding both grace and truth in perfect fullness at the same time is something that only Jesus does perfectly and consistently, but this is the way that I, as a follower of Christ, am called to be in relationship with everyone I meet all of the time. So even though this is a super difficult piece of instruction for me, ultimately it is very helpful for me. Why is it helpful 
and it's so difficult. Well, it's helpful because it's so darn clear. That's why it's helpful. It's clear. It provides clear guidance for all those relationally challenging experiences that I have all throughout the day and the week. Often, when I'm in relationship with somebody, I, I kind of treat it like, like I do when I tune the stereo after somebody else has been driving my car and they've messed up my stereo. You know what I'm talking about? And you, I gotta, so I, I got to tune up the bass, right? Maybe this is a, a situation where I got to bring the truth and I just feel like I got to turn up the bass. Get t- or maybe this is a situation where everybody's broken down and I just really need to provide, provide this grace, right? So maybe I just need to like make it kind of soft and gentle. And it's, it's, it's actually not like that, though. If I'm to handle every situation with grace and truth, I need to turn the base or the truth all the way up, and I need to turn the trouble or the grace or however you see that, I need to turn that all the way up. I need to be full of grace. There was nothing short of being full of grace in that conversation with Nathan. That would be ideal. And I need to be full of truth. Man, he didn't pull any punches. It was all truth. Everything he said was, right? That's the ideal. It's something I'll probably never quite get to, but it's very helpful for me because it's so clear. uh, Grace and truth at the same time. Now, if I feel like I'm leaning in one direction, um, that's helpful to me because I know what I need to bring and ask for grace to bring into. If I'm leaning into a big graceful conversation with Rich, and I'm just feeling so graceful about it, I also want to make sure, well, let's make sure we bring truth into this, right? Same with the other side. If I feel like, man, I'm just going to confront this person, I, and that's the way I'm feeling, I'm leaning that way, I need to remember, man, be graceful here. Because it's both and all the time. A couple personal stories that I hope will be helpful, and then we'll end with a couple examples from Jesus, all right? Several years ago, I was in my office, and this high school student came in, and uh, she told me this story from the previous two nights prior, and she had let herself get unguarded. She'd gone to this high school party, and she'd gotten uh, drunk, and everybody else was there too, and she got super intimate with a guy that she didn't even know. She lost something she'll never get back, and she was crushed, right? So full of regret, so full of sadness, so devastated. And I knew the backstory, and then dad's out, out of the picture, and mom's not engaged. Mom has no clue what's happening. And I'm just feeling this like overwhelming desire to just sort of protect and be graceful and just, you know, love this kid. And as I began to pray with her, I, I felt like I was hearing God say, be full of grace and truth. Be full of grace and truth, right? And so my prayer for her was much more about uh, being graceful to her, but bringing the truth of the gospel, like praying um, about who she was and who she was meant to be and the truth of what she's really looking for in these, in these uh, misguided adventures and the destructive nature of sin and, and praying about the forgiveness and redemption and the truth about the power of the Holy Spirit to change a life and trying to be full of grace and truth in that in that in that moment. A couple years ago, I ran into this person unexpectedly. They'd been super unfair to me. They'd been public. They'd publicly lied about me. And uh, my gut wanted to go up and correct their perspective, right? I wanted to walk up and just give them just the truth. Um, and I wasn't super actually very interested in being graceful about it because I didn't really feel very graceful. But, but this, here's the thing. I remember thinking at the time, um, <clears throat> you can't be revengeful and graceful at the same time. 
can't, you can't be revengeful and graceful at the same time. But you can be truthful and graceful at the same time. You can be. You can be truthful and graceful at the same time. So it was a real check to me. It was a real, a real correction to myself. I'm, okay, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to be truthful, but I am called by Christ to also be graceful. <clears throat> and then a final example. Sometimes it's so difficult to be full of grace and truth that you, you cannot do it without community. You cannot do it by yourself. And you'd be foolish to try. So one time I had to set up this meeting with somebody. It was an out-and-out confrontation. It was an intervention. It was a surprise. We drop in at their house. They've been leading this crazy second life, causing this big destructive path, and it needed to stop, and I needed to lay it out in black and white. But I realized that I was so personally affected by the sin of this person, so personally wrapped up, emotionally pulled in, and, and so wound up about, uh, about what I had discovered that they'd been involved in, that I was going to have a really hard time being anything other than just truthful. And so I asked somebody else from the church to come with me because I knew I was going to need somebody else to be graceful. Right? I knew it because I just didn't have it. I was, it was almost like totally beyond my capacity. Um, so I needed help bringing the grace, and I think that can be something that is a realistic and practical kind of approach for a set of parents. It's not good cop, bad cop. That's not what I'm talking about. It's, it's the humble recognition, and there wasn't a lot of humility in me in that moment, but it's the recognition that, man, I don't even have, I don't have it. I need somebody else who, who shares this, this vision of true love being grace and truth together. And, and maybe, maybe even together we can get closer to the ideal than just alone. All right, uh, here's a couple examples from Jesus' life. Probably the most famous and most helpful to kind of roll out is John chapter 4, a couple chapters after what we read, where Jesus is, is brought this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. How does that happen? Well, the whole thing's been a setup from the beginning. The religious rulers are trying to catch Jesus in some sort of a contradiction in his teachings by setting up the situation wherein this woman gets involved in this married man's life or vice versa. She gets caught. We never hear what happens to the dude, but she gets brought before Jesus out in the street and all of these religious leaders, and they want to stone her to death, which by law they are allowed to do. This is the story where they say, Jesus, what do you think we should do? And Jesus mysteriously kneels down and starts like drawing in the ground with his fingers, writing something in the ground. What's he doing? We never find out what that is. But finally, he stands up and he says something so powerful, and it is probably the perfect of course, it's Christ, so he can do this, but it's, it's like the perfect um, demonstration of love. What does that mean? It means full of grace and full of truth. And you probably remember the story, uh, in case you're not familiar with it, he, without addressing whether or not uh, publicly what she's done is right or wrong, he basically says, you guys all think she should be stoned for this? Great. Whoever hasn't ever sinned can throw the first rock at this woman. Right? He just totally undoes them, right? And starting with the oldest person first, they start walking away. They drop their rocks. They walk away. And it's not permissiveness. It's not mamby-pamby permissiveness because then he turns to the woman and he says, don't ever do this again, right? Leave your life of sin. But it's grace and truth. And what's fascinating to me is it's not just grace and truth for the woman. It's actually also grace and truth for the religious leaders, Right? It's grace and truth for them. He hasn't compromised the truth at all. He's been full of truth. He has upheld the law of Moses. 
Um, and yet he's also been super graceful to them by saying, by helping them to recognize, look, if you're free of sin, you go ahead. And it's such a graceful way of saying, see, you, this whole thing's been a trap from the beginning. I recognize that. You know that. Let's cut this whole thing out, right? And it's full of grace and truth. And then probably the best example, uh, like theologically, is, um, is the cross, where Jesus is full of grace and truth on the cross when he dies for the sin of the world. Um, he is being sinned against. He is innocent. And yet he's praying for the forgiveness of the people who are putting the nails in his hands, according to the record. He prays for forgiveness of those who are crucifying him. At the same time, he endures the full penalty for the sin of the world. He doesn't compromise the truth. He doesn't be like, ah, let's just forget about it. No, he, he, he takes the full penalty of the sin of the world. He demonstrates the fullness of the truth, which is that sin always leads to death. And so he will take the sin of us, our sin, and he'll experience death on our behalf. And so really what we see as we look to Jesus for guidance in our everyday relationships with people is we see this either-or kind of thinking replaced with a both-and kind of thinking, a both-and approach. Not either grace or truth, both grace and truth at the same time. And then even, why don't you come up, Sienna, even this weird sort of um, Western thinking of a spectrum, like there's grace on this side, there's truth on this side, and the, the correct measurements, the correct place is somewhere in the middle. Even that whole worldview becomes obsolete, right? Because now you can be fully graceful and truthful at the same time. You, you got to ditch the whole spectrum thing. Almost everything is measured like cold to hot, right? Jesus is saying, you can be graceful, and full of truth in your grace. You can also be totally truthful without sacrificing grace at all. It's both and at the same time. Because it's real love, that's why. It's real love. Real love is made from 100% grace and 100% truth at the same time. So I want you to look back at the names that you wrote down at the start of this sermon. And whether these are like your acquaintances or the most important people in your life, it doesn't matter in the sense that you're called to love these people. You're looking at names of created individuals whom you are called to love if you're a Christian. Right? You're called to love these people. And the basic definition of love, according to Jesus, is a way of relating to those people that is full of grace and full of truth. And so I just want to give you a little bit of time to consider, are you leaning one way or another to drop right back into that spectrum way of thinking? Maybe a better thing is, do you need to bring a fuller uh, measure of grace into this relationship? Do you need to bring a fuller measurement of truth into this relationship? With, in other words, without being less graceful, how could you be more truthful? Without being any less truthful, how could you be more graceful?
Friends, you never outgrow the basics. You're never going to outgrow this. You're never going to outgrow the basic concept that as a Christ follower, your basic relational ethic is love. And Christ defines that as full of grace and full of truth. All right, I'll give you one more minute. I'll ask you just to consider the names, the relationships that you've identified, maybe others that have come to mind. that completely <clears throat> gosh it just overwhelms the, the perspective and the uh, I don't know the template that we bring into so many relationships automatically and I thank you for the challenge this simple challenge of loving as you loved pray for the help that we need would you enable us Lord to take this as our guide this clear definition as the manner in which we are to handle every phone call we make tomorrow, every interaction we have across a counter with somebody, every interaction we have in an intense conversation, you know, where we close the door and we, we might even write down notes because we're thinking about HR or whatever, but whatever it is, um, would you enable us to exist in this context of relationships in a way that demonstrates your presence in and around us. Would we be full of grace and full of truth? Amen. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.